The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Lord, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And you have made man in your image for the express purpose of resolving the angelic conflict that we, through our relationship with you, through growth to spiritual maturity, might give evidence and testimony in Satan's appeal trial that the world in terms of unbelievers and the angels, both elect and fallen, would be aware of your grace and your mercy and your justice. Father, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are vital witnesses in that testimony and we execute our role by learning and applying your word in our lives. So Father, now as we come to this all-important task of learning your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills us would make these things clear to us, help us to understand these so important doctrines relevant to our salvation that they might have an impact on our spiritual life and spur us to greater love for you, and spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying some very important doctrines and some very complex doctrines. I am trying in some way to synthesize this down so it doesn't come across as very complex. But unfortunately, sometimes when there is a mist in the pulpit, there is a fog in the pew. We're going to try to avoid that. I was up late last night trying to think through this and it seems like the more that I have studied in the realm of imputations this week, the more I've become aware of how little I understood the topic and so I felt I was scrambling last night trying to put things together. So we're going to move forward, but the more I got into this, the more I realized how important the whole doctrine of imputations is and how foundational it is to understanding the Word of God and especially to understanding our so great salvation. One of the things that struck me in my study this week of this topic, this doctrine, is that when I was in seminary, we basically studied three imputations. They weren't mentioned very much. There are seven, and we will look at all seven of them, not in detail. We'll look at the three because they're the most important and the foundational to our study of justification. But it impressed me that even though some foundational work had been done on imputation, the doctrine of imputations in the past, amazing how little is said and taught about imputation in the scripture and yet as we will see in our study of Romans 5 uh, beginning this morning this is the hinge chapter and hinge paragraph in all of Romans now you think of a hinge on a door that hinge is what the door turns on it, it connects the wall to the door and provides an opening and it's that that turning point that central focus at, at a door so when we talk in literature about something that is a hinge. We're talking about that which is the, the focal point, the connection between two, two elements of a, of, a, of a piece of writing. And so it shows how foundational and critical that is. Romans 5, uh, 12 through the end of the chapter is the central focal point of the entire epistle of Romans. And the thrust of that, those verses is the doctrine of imputations. And so we see in Paul's thinking that as he develops all the concepts related to sin, justification in the first 
four and a half chapters of Romans and then goes into the doctrines related to the spiritual life in Romans 6, 7, and 8 and the role of the Holy Spirit that the hinge that everything turns on is this one section of Romans that deals with the doctrine of imputation. Imputation is foundational to understanding the subject at hand, which is justification. We're studying through Galatians 2, and we're studying the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith is based on imputation. You have to understand the doctrine of imputation or you will not understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And what we have seen is that the doctrine of imputation itself is built upon an even more foundational doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the integrity of God. So justification, to get to a full and complete understanding of justification, which is so rare today, either in the seminary classroom, and if it's rare there, then you're, there, you're going to be cranking out pastors who don't understand the doctrine. And if they don't understand it, then the people in the pew won't understand it. If people in the pew won't understand it, number one, how are they going to communicate clearly the gospel when they are witnessing? And number two, how are they even going to be sure that they're saved? And if they're not sure they're saved, how can they have a comprehension of eternal security? If they don't have a comprehension of eternal security, then how can they have any comprehension of grace or grace orientation in their life? Because now they're trying to please God all the time to make sure they don't lose their salvation. So we see the relevance and significance of these doctrines for our lives. They are foundational to uh, our salvation and our entire spiritual life. So in the last three weeks, we have focused on the integrity of God. The integrity of God is made up of three aspects of divine essence. God's perfect righteousness, God's absolute justice, and God's immeasurable love. We have seen that what the righteousness of God demands because God's righteousness is absolute perfection. God's righteousness is the standard of divine integrity. It provides the criterion by which justice functions. So it is the standard or the principle of divine integrity. So what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. That brings us to the level of justice which focuses on the application or execution of divine integrity. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes or performs through the love of God which provides the motivation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes through the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. Grace is not an attribute or one of the essential characteristics of God. It is an expression of the integrity of God. Grace is the policy of God towards mankind that everything that God does for man is based on unearned favor. It is based on who God is and what He has done specifically through the work of Christ on the cross and not on who and what we are. So if we look at the standard of divine integrity here, these principles of divine integrity, we can say what the righteousness of God then approves, the justice of God provides and blesses through the grace of God, namely the fullness of blessing 
as a love gift to the believer. Let me say that again. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God provides through the grace of God, namely the fullness of blessing of God as a love gift to the believer. That's on the positive side. So we see that at least since the fall, the blessing of God comes from the justice of God. That's our point of contact. That's something we'll develop a little further and is rarely understood today. On the other hand, what the righteousness of God condemns, the justice of God judges, or what the righteousness of God rejects, say it this way, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but always in the love of God so that the divine solution is provided through the grace of God. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but always in the love of God, so that the divine solution is provided through the grace of God. Now that we understand the divine, divine integrity, we have to ask the question, how can a God who is perfectly righteous and just have a relationship with man who is imperfect and minus R? God is plus R, man is minus R. So the righteousness of God rejects minus R. That means that the justice of God must condemn minus R. But the love of God provides the solution. Man is in a status of condemnation to God. And what is the basis for this condemnation? That's really the focus of this study. What is the basis for man's condemnation? Now you will go and you will listen to any number of evangelists and any number of teachers And they will say that the reason you are condemned is because of your personal sins. And that is wrong. You are not condemned because of your personal sins. You are condemned because of Adam's original sin and its imputation to you. That's where we're going. We have to understand that concept because it is pivotal in any good understanding of of the doctrines of salvation. So if you're going to understand justification and have it understood correctly, you must understand that the reason you are condemned before God is not because of anything that you have done, but because of Adam's original sin, which has been imputed to you. Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We need to begin with some basic exegesis to make sure we properly understand what this verse is saying in the original languages. Remember, the Bible must always be interpreted and first understood on the basis of what is said in the original languages. Frequently in English translations, a lot is lost. Uh, Whenever you uh, translate, you have to make a number of choices when you translate from one language to another. And that will bring to bear certain, inter- certain theological assumptions on the part of the interpreter, whoever that may be. Because there is ne- never any one-to-one correspondence between one language and another language. Also, as we'll see in this very passage, sometimes a word can be used with one meaning and then in just two sentences later or in the next clause, that same word can be used with a totally different meaning. So that you have to have a certain you bring to the Scripture a certain understanding and comparison of Scripture with Scripture in order to make sure you properly interpret uh, or translate and then interpret the Scriptures. So we'll break this down very simply and we may spend several weeks here before we get back to Galatians just because I think that this will help us understand 
Galatians a little better. See, we have this privilege that Paul did not have. Paul wrote Galatians first. And Galatians is sort of a primer for Romans. Now, Romans develops the ideas that are in Galatians much more fully. So if we want to understand what's in a more abbreviated form in Galatians, then we turn over to Romans and we'll get a little fuller discussion of it, and that will in turn help us understand exactly what the Apostle is talking about in Galatians chapter 2. So let's start here. It begins with the phrase dia tuta. In the Greek it looks like this, d-i-a-t-o-u-t-o. This is the preposition dia, which means... um, through or for, as a, it's really an idiom that means wherefore or therefore, but it's very strong. It's it's much stronger than um, than the Greek word un, which is the normal word used for therefore. It's it's highlighting a conclusion. Literally, it means for this reason. Now, as soon as you read this and you see it's that Paul says for this reason, for what reason? He is going to. Explain the foundation for what he has just explained. In Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, he explains man's condemnation of sin. He explains the basic doctrines related to salvation, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, and uh, the imputation of faith. And we will look at Romans 4 when we get to one of our later imputations. But right now we're focusing on the imputation of of Adam's original sin. Therefore, just as one man. So, therefore, indicates a conclusion that everything he has said up to this point is going to lead into what he says in these verses from 5, 12 down through 21. This is the hinge. And the focus here is imputation. Then everything he says in the rest of the epistle flows from this paragraph. So, that's why this is so crucial to understand this discussion and what this means for you as a believer. Here we're going to see a comparison. He's going to set up a comparison which is indicated in the next word, which is hosper. H-O-S-P-E-R, which is a comparative word and best translated as as. He's going to draw a comparison between the first atom and the second Adam. The term second Adam is a title for the person of Jesus Christ. The first Adam was created perfect. The second Adam was born perfect. The first Adam sinned. The second Adam was sinless. The first Adam is the source of ruin and condemnation for the human race. The second Adam is the source of eternal salvation for the human race. The first Adam died as a result of his sin. The second Adam died as a penalty for his sin. The second Adam died as a substitute for the sins of the world, not for his own sin. So what is set up here in these verses, these nine verses, is a contrast between Uh, the first Adam and his second Adam, in order to illustrate the significance of our salvation. Therefore, just as comparison, through one man, sin entered into the world. 
then entered is the verb translated entered is ace erkamai. That's transliterated as E-I-S-E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. It means to enter, to go into. And what it, the significance revolves around the tense. It is an aorist tense. It is a culminative aorist, which means that it focuses on the cessation of the act. That this was an act that occurred in the past. It has ceased. And the results go on. It's focusing on the results of this. Just as through one man, sin came into the world. The point here is by looking at Adam, uh, it, it points out that sin already existed. This is the implication. Sin already existed in the universe. Where did it come, come from? It entered into the universe through the sin of the angel Lucifer. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 tell us of Lucifer's fall, that he was the created the highest of all the angels. He was the most beautiful of any creature that ever came from the hand of God. He was the most brilliant of all of the angels, and he had the highest position uh, of the angels. He served the throne of God, and I believe he represented the angels to God in whatever form of worship they had uh, in the angelic economy. The reason I say that is the word that we have been studying a little bit in John Mashiach, which it looks like this in the Hebrew, Mashiach, M-E-S-S-I-A-C-H, is where we get our word Messiah from. It's translated Messiah, the Anointed One. And in Ezekiel 28, he is, Lucifer is called the Anointed Cherub, which indicates that he has a very special, unique position in the throne room of God. Lucifer began to focus on all of this worship that he was uh, bringing to God and Lucifer wanted it for himself. He began to lust and he gave himself over to pride and arrogance and he wanted to be God. And in Isaiah 14, we have the five I wills of Satan which culminate in the highest I will, I will be like the Most High. So this is how sin entered into the universe. But when God created or recreated uh, the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, the six days of restoration, they, he creates perfect environment for a new creature, man. Man is created, created, placed in the Garden of Eden in a status of perfect environment. Adam is perfect. All of the angels are perfect. And sin is not in the present world order at that time. It is perfect. It, sin is introduced. The door is opened by Adam. That's the thrust of this opening sentence. Just as through one man, it is Adam. It's not Eve. It is Adam who is the source of sin in the cosmic system as we know it now. So how did this take place? We need to review this to understand it so that we can greater appreciate what God has done for us in, in this whole concept of imputation of Adam's original sin. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. When God created Adam and Eve, He began with Adam. And on the, first, on the sixth day of creation, in the first chapter of Genesis, we see the summary of how God made the human race. Verse 26, Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Just a side note here. If you notice the uh, pronouns here, they are first person plural pronouns. Not only is God, the word for God, Elohim, which is the plural, but the pronouns are also plural, which indicates a plurality in the Godhead. This does not overtly teach the Trinity, but certainly supports the doctrine of the Trinity. That all three members of the Trinity are involved in the creation of the human race. Verse 27, And God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates man, places him in a position over the earth. Here is the earth and all of the orders of animals that God has created placed on the earth. And over everything, God places man. Man is the uh, representative of God to everything on the earth. And man's task is to his responsibility is to rule over the, the, the natural order and to fill the earth through procreation and the human race would then be in a position to dominate and rule the earth. But something happened. When God created man, He created him in perfect environment and those first years are the age of human perfection. We've studied the dispensations there are specific economies in God's plan for human history. God's plan for human history is marked out by specific time periods called dispensations. This is the dispensation of human perfection. When Adam was created in the image of God, just as God is plus R, Adam was plus R. Eve was taken from the side of, of Adam. He shot the woman and she is also plus R. God is plus R, and plus R has affinity and rapport with plus R, so God could love man personally in the garden. So love, divine love, is the point of contact between God and man in the Garden of Eden. This is very important to understand that justice was not an issue because man was perfectly righteous. The only area in which justice functioned in the Garden of Eden was in relationship to the mandate on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you turn, oh, we'll look at that in Genesis chapter 2. After God created the, the woman, Isha, the Hebrew is very interesting. The, the word for man creates the man, Ish, and the woman is Isha. You simply add the feminine ending, Isha. She is not named until after the fall. She does not have her name changed. Prior to the fall, she is called Isha, or woman. And the Lord God, verse 22, Genesis 2:22, fashioned into a woman, Isha, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. I'm sorry, I skipped down too far. I want to go back to Genesis 1. Uh, where is the mandate? Genesis 2. Uh, 16 and 17, excuse me. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
for in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. So here we have the mandate, the prohibition. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of the garden of the knowledge of good, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you do, you shall surely die. Now, what kind of death is this? This is very important. In the Hebrew, you have a very interesting construction, one that the Jews use for emphasis, and that is a verb plus the same verb stem in the form of what's called an infinitive construct. Now, when you take this together, it's an idiom. And what it emphasizes is certainty and surety. I'm making an important point here. You may have been taught in the past that this has the idea, it should be translated, dying, you will die. That's bad, bad, poor Hebrew translation. You can search every Hebrew grammar available in print and out of print, and they will all say that's bad translation. When that is translated that way, it is to make a point of spiritual death leading to physical death. The grammar does not necessarily substantiate that. Other concepts do. But the grammar does not substantiate that. The grammar is an idiomatic function, and it is used to emphasize certainty. In the day, at the moment you eat, you will certainly die. Now, the point that God is emphasizing there is the, the immediate consequence that will occur as a result of eating the fruit. What is that immediate consequence? That immediate consequence is death. Did they die physically at that moment? No, they did not. I may, I'm leading up to a very important point here. They died spiritually. Spiritual death brought ruin and condemnation not only on mankind, but all of nature. It had ramifications for every aspect of nature. Prior to Adam's sin, all animals were uh, herbivorous. No animals were carnivores. Prior to the uh, fall, there were no thorns or thistles in, in, in the um, plant kingdom. So all of this is a result of Adam's sin, Adam's fall. So spiritual death is the immediate penalty that comes from his dis from disobedience. The result of that is ultimate physical death, which goes throughout the whole uh, natural order. Both man, animals, and uh, all living things can die physically. That have life can die physically. It also results in condemnation for all of all of nature. But the immediate penalty that God emphasizes here through a infinitive construct. Uh, syntax is that immediately you will die. And that's what is going to happen in chapter 3. So, Adam and the woman are told of this prohibition. They cannot eat of the fruit of the tree. And that's the only indication of divine justice in the garden. Divine personal love is the point of contact. Divine love is the motivation of the essence of God. Divine love supplied all of their needs. It supplied the air that they breathed. It supplied the food that they ate, the, the, all the other trees in the garden, especially the uh, tree of lives, which provided uh, sustenance for them, that as long as they ate from that tree, they would have eternal life. It provided uh, instruction for them daily through doctrine as the Lord came and walked with them 
in the garden every day in the cool of the day, which is an idiom for the evening of the day. Love provided many things for them. Perfect environment, the tree of life doctrine, all of these things. But divine love could not provide eternal security. Divine love could not guarantee that they would stay in that environment for the remainder of their days. Divine love could not protect them from their own volition. Divine love could provide the doctrine they needed so they could make the right choices, but divine love could not guarantee that they would make the right choices. Divine love could not override their volition. So what we learn is that though divine love was their point of contact, divine love could not provide security. Security could not come in any way at that time. What we have then is the fall. At the fall, Satan comes along in the form of a serpent and he has decided that the weakest link in the system here is going to be the woman. So he is going to come up and entice the woman with the fruit. And he has very crafty, and the way he does that shows that he has observed her for some time. He has watched how she operates and how she thinks, and that he is going to appeal to her what he perceives as the weak link in her thinking. So he begins in verse 1 of chapter 3 by challenging what God has said. This is always the way in which Satan operates, to question the veracity of God's Word. How do we know that God has really said that, and is that really in your best interest? That's what he indicates by his opening salvo in verse 1. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Her response shows that, that she had not paid complete attention in her Bible classes and in listening to the Lord. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. So she adds to the Word of God. We see a standard M.O. here and how people get confused and distracted from Scripture. First of all, they question what God has said. Secondly, they fail to understand it properly so they begin to add to it or to take away from it. In this case, she adds to it. And then by doing that, it gives the serpent an opening and he directly challenges uh, what God says and says, you shall surely not die. And he uses the same construction that God uses back in verse 17 to emphasize certainty. So there is a contrast there. He says, there's no certainty in this. You won't die. And the reason is that God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God. And now he impugns the character of God. He says, the reason God does not want you to eat from the, from the fruit of the tree is because you will be just like him. So the woman looks at the fruit and she evaluates it and she decides to take it and eat. And at that point, the woman falls. So the woman is tempted and she sins and the woman falls. She is now a sinner. But Adam is not a sinner because Adam is the head of the race. Adam is the responsible party here. So she calls the man. She calls Adam over and she says, She's taking the fruit and she gives it to her husband and he makes a choice between God and the woman and he decides to go with his companion and he eats. What's the result? Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, Adam's sin is critical from two perspectives. First of all, it is a personal sin. But there's something else about Adam's sin that is unique and that is that it is an original sin. 
It has a unique place in relationship to the entire human race because Adam stands as our seminal head. I will explain these terms in a minute. And our federal head. So that Adam's decision has an impact on all of his decisions. Now, seminally means that the entire human race is physically related to Adam. We are an organic whole. Every human being is genetically tied to Adam. Federal headship has to do with the fact that he is designated as our representative. We live in a in a country that has a federal form of government, a representative form of government. We hire rep, we uh, uh, elect representatives to go to Washington, and whether we agree or disagree with the choices they make, we are still uh, culpable for those bad decisions, and we benefit from their good decisions, whether we agreed with them at the at the time or not. They are our federal representative. For example, we may have, and this happened in the early 70s, our our federal representatives and, and, and the Senate will approve a treaty. In the early 70s, they approved a treaty with the Soviet Union to do away with all chemical and biological warfare. The Russians never slowed down. They just kept uh, all of their biological and chemical laboratories in, in function and geared them up in preparation for future wars, conducting all sorts of, of uh, experiments in chemical and biological warfare. We, on the other hand, completely ceased all production of chemical and biological weapons. Now, whether we agreed with that decision or not, our representatives, the senators, those who served in the Senate at that time, voted to approve that treaty. And so we followed it. Their decision is our decision. Good or bad, their decision is our decision. That's what representative headship means. Federal representation. So Adam's sin is our sin. When Adam sinned, it's our sin because he is our federal head. But he is also, we are also physically related to him. So these two come together. Now the important thing is, in theology, usually you have these two systems demonstrated as one or the other. And in, in, in seminary, I remember taking anthropology my first year of seminary, and it was presented that you either hold to a seminal view or you hold to a federal view but they are both present in Scripture. There's scriptural support for both, and both are true. Now, just an addendum, because this question was asked of me recently, uh, so we're going to sidetrack because I want to make a comment on this. The question was asked, could it not be that before God created the human race, when the angels were engaged in their revolt and eternity passed in heaven, that Christ's death on the cross might not in some way as a future act be related to the salvation of the angels. The assumption being that if the angels could fall and could sin, that God would, by nature of his integrity, provide, need to provide a way of salvation for the angels. Well, could that be related to Christ? And the answer, answer is absolutely no, never. That involves heresy of the, some of the deepest kind because it relates to the whole doctrine of the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ became a man, not simply a creature. Jesus Christ became perfect man because only a man, a human being, could die on the cross for mankind. That's why Jesus went to the cross. I mean, that's why Jesus became a man. God could not die for man. An angel could not die for man. Man cannot die for an angel. Jesus Christ became true humanity, an undiminished deity, united together in one person forever, 
because as a man he had to go to the cross to die for our sins because we are organically related. This relates to our seminal relationship in Adam. Every human being is genetically related. We are genetically related to Jesus Christ because he is true humanity and therefore one can die for all. That cannot happen in the angelic realm. Each angel is created separately. There are different categories of angels, almost uh, different uh, species as it were. Uh, You have cherubs, you have seraphs, and you have uh, several other different kinds of angels. They are not organically related. There's no one angel who then had uh, a whole bunch of baby angels who developed a whole race of angels. There's no organic unity in the angelic order. So whatever God might have done to provide some system of salvation for the angels is not revealed in the Scripture. We don't know anything about it, and we should never even attempt to speculate about it. That just is uh, totally fruitless and has no benefit for our spiritual life. So Adam is seminally related to us and federally related to us. And because of Adam's original sin, we all come under condemnation. This This is the point of Adam's original sin. Now, at the fall, things changed. Prior to the fall, love was our point of contact. After the fall, love could no longer be our point of contact because God was and still is perfect righteousness and man lost perfect righteousness and is now minus R. Because of that, there is a divider between God and man which is called the sin barrier. On, the, on God's side, what the righteousness of God condemns or rejects, the justice of God condemns. So it was necessary for God to condemn man because man did not measure up to God's perfect standard. So what the righteousness of God rejected, the justice of God condemned. Now someone might ask the question at this point, does this mean that Adam's sin advanced the plan of God? Because Adam's sin, now God could be gracious. Before the fall, there was no need for saving grace. Justice was not the issue. After the fall, saving the grace uh, saving grace is now necessary. Divine justice is the issue. Divine justice is the point of uh, contact with God and a whole new system applies. So does sin advance the plan of God? Never. Sin is never a reason for advancing the plan of God. What happens at Adam's fall is because of sin, the justice of God now condemns man. Man is under condemnation. Because man is under condemnation, divine love comes into act as the motivator, but is no longer the point of contact because now justice stands in the way as the guardian of divine integrity. And God's love motivates God to provide a solution based on grace. Grace is unmerited and undeserved favor. It is the plan and the policy of God. And this policy, this grace solution is based on the whole understanding of imputation. Romans chapter 4 quotes from the Psalms and says, Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute iniquity. Now think about that verse a minute. Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute his own iniquity. Now, you have sinned and I have sinned. What that verse is telling us is that God does not impute to us our iniquity. That is not the basis for our condemnation. 
The basis for our condemnation is Adam's original sin. Verse 12, therefore, of Romans 5, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Now, what kind of death is this? That is why I spent some time talking about the command in, in Genesis 2. The command there focused on spiritual death, not physical death. Physical death is a consequence, but physical death is not the issue. And everybody makes this mistake. I have read commentary and theologian after theologian, and when they come to Romans chapter 5, they make this physical death. This is not... I think physical death is included in the idea here because the word death, which is the articular form of thanatos, can refer to either spiritual death or physical death. And here it includes both with an emphasis on spiritual death. But if you hold your place here, or I'll just read it to you, if we see a very similar passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where the subject is resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the subject is resurrection. And the Apostle Paul says, on a parallel passage, For since by a man came death, but by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. What is the point of this verse? Is that talking about physical death in 1 Corinthians 15 or spiritual death? It's talking about spiritual death because the issue is physical resurrection, physical life. So in order to keep your categories together, if the subject is physical life, physical resurrection from the physically dead, then the subject there must be physical death, not spiritual death. Spiritual death obviously is the cause of physical death, but there in 1 Corinthians 15, the subject is spiritual death. But, uh, I mean, the subject is physical death. Now, why is that important? Another aside, we get into so many asides in this subject because there's so many um, doctrines that relate. Physical death is the consequence of sin. Spiritual death is the penalty. As a result of the penalty of spiritual death, there is physical death in the universe. What does that mean? That means that there was no physical death in the universe prior to Adam's fall. Somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. You go out here and you, you get out here with the rock beds and you find all kinds of fossils. To make a fossil, those creatures had to die. I thought dinosaurs and, and all those prehistoric animals lived before man and they had to die before man. If you believe that, then you cannot be a Christian. Period. Evolution is 180 degrees antithetical to Christianity. You can't merge them. You can't mix them. You can't try to figure out some way of compromise at all. Because the Bible says death is a spiritual consequence. It's the result of Adam's sin, and it is specifically related to the cross. The cross resolves the problem of physical death, and that's the point of 1 Corinthians 15, which concludes, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over what? Victory over physical death. That's the point. The point of the cross is that physical death is part of the consequence of, of, the, of sin. Now, if physical death happened before Adam sinned, then physical death has nothing to do with sin. And therefore, it was not 
necessary for Christ to go to the cross. That's why evolution is a very subtle attack on the cross. It is a satanic attack on the very foundations of Christianity and the Bible. And so you must either take the Bible literally in everything that it says from Genesis 1-1 on or throw the whole thing out because the Bible is an integrated whole. And not physical, that those spiritual problems have physical consequences and all was conquered and dealt with by Christ on the cross. So 1 Corinthians 15, to make sure you get the point, 1 Corinthians 15 deals with physical death. We know that because it focuses on the whole issue of resurrection and physical life. But Romans 5 deals primarily with spiritual death. And you can, we'll see that as we go over and over again when it talks about death. It's talking about, as in um, verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How were we reconciled to God? Not by the physical death of Jesus Christ on the cross, but by His spiritual death on the cross. The thrust in this passage deals with what Adam did and the consequences of Adam's sin, which is primarily spiritual death and not physical death. 1 Corinthians 15 deals with the consequence of the penalty. Romans 5 deals with the penalty itself, which is spiritual death. So I hope that's clear now. Our subject is divine imputation. And we must look at what this means. So, introduction to the doctrine of divine imputation. Let's break this down simply and categorically so we can understand it. The English word imputation comes from the Greek, our Latin word, imputare. The Latin word means to reckon, to attribute, to ascribe something to someone, or to charge something to one's account. If you think about charging it to your account, think about your credit card. When you go out and you buy something and use your plastic, use your Visa, American Express, or MasterCard, or Discovery Card, or whatever, and then you get that bill at the end of the month, what has happened is you went to, the, you went to a merchant and you purchased something. And you said, I want you to charge this to my account. And so they run that plastic through the, through the computer machine and it sends the information off to the central bank where you got your credit card, and that is imputed to your account, that charge. It is credited to your account. It is now totally yours. You have assumed legal responsibility for that debt. So it is a commercial concept and it is a legal concept. You have, you have taken on the full legal responsibility for the payment of that debt at some time in the future and hopefully not too far distant future. The Apostle Paul uses the word in this sense, in Philemon 1. Now, Philemon is a very short little postcard in the New Testament written to uh, Philemon who had owned a slave named Onesimus. Now, Paul, Philemon was a believer and Paul had had, a, uh, had had him in some of his Bible classes and taught some doctrine to Philemon. And when Paul was in Rome, he ran into this escaped slave, Onesimus. And while Paul was in Rome, he gave the gospel to Onesimus. Onesimus became a believer began to grow in his understanding of the word and realized that he was wrong in running away from his owner, Philemon. Very interesting that Paul does not say you're totally justified in this because slavery is wrong. Paul said slavery entails certain responsibilities to the master 
and therefore you are not justified in running away from your master. You need to return home because you are his legal property and we must abide by the law. So he sent his sent Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter. And there were instructions from Paul as to how to treat uh, Onesimus in grace. So part of imputation, part of the reason you have to understand imputation is if you do not understand imputation, you will not become grace-oriented. So imputation is foundational to understanding grace. Paul says to Philemon, but if he, that is Onesimus, has wronged you in any way, if he's cost you any money, whatever it might be, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I'll pay the bill. Whatever it is, I'll pay the bill. So Paul uses that concept, that the word there, elogeo, the Greek word. Put it up on the board. We're going to look at this again. The Greek word is elogeo here. Two L's. E-L-L-O-G-E-O, which is a cognate of the verb logizomai. L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. These, these are the basic words used for imputation in the Greek New Testament. In the Greek, Greco-Roman world of that time, these words indicated a tremendous amount of responsibility and legal accountability. So Paul assumes that responsibility and that legal accountability on the part of the escaped slave Onesimus. Theologically, this has great implications. Just as Onesimus was a slave in the physical realm, so we are slaves in the spiritual realm. The Apostle Paul took on the debt, legally accepted the debt of the slave Onesimus so that now that was Paul's debt. In the spiritual realm, Jesus Christ will have our debts imputed to him on the cross so that our minus R is now imputed to him with the result that eventually his plus R, his perfect righteousness, can be charged to our account. So what that means is that just as Paul now owed the debt instead of Onesimus, in the same way, Jesus Christ paid the debt for us and what we now have on our account, on our ledger, is perfect righteousness. That's what we're responsible for, is that perfect righteousness which comes from Christ. That's imputations in a nutshell. Theologically, the word imputation is used to describe an act of God specifically from the integrity of God or the divine justice, whereby either condemnation or blessing is ascribed, attributed, reckoned, given, or imposed. I think all those verbs are important to get the, the main idea of imputation. It is an act of God whereby either condemnation or blessing is ascribed, attributed, reckoned, given, or imposed on the human race. It is a function of the justice of God directed towards man and is the foundation of all of God's plan for mankind. The original language, we have the words legizomai in the Greek and then in the Hebrew, we have the word chashav. C-H-A-S-H-A 
and it with a bait without the dogish is pronounced like a B. Kasha. And that means to think, to count, to reckon, to attribute. Let's look at one example in the Old Testament to understand this, and then we will uh, close this morning. Turn to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book in the Old Testament which deals with the sacrifices in the temple. Leviticus 17. The primary verse we're looking at is down... Let me see, in verse 5, I believe. Verse 4. We'll begin in verse 3 to get the context. God is speaking. Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, and that has to do with with, um, killing the animal uh, in relation for food, which is to be brought into the tabernacle. This is not talking specifically about a sacrifice. Any man who slaughters an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it first as an offering to the Lord. In other words, he hasn't brought it to sanctify it first and then to, then to kill it. Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He's, it's to be imputed to that man. It is a legal concept here. That's the point of this illustration. It is a legal concept and this man is now guilty of something legally and he has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to illustrate what happens with uh, in spiritual death that we're cut off from God. That's the that's the basic point. I don't want to get into a detailed analysis of all the all the Levitical offerings, but the point is that this man is going out on his own, apart from the mandates of God. He's operating outside the Mosaic law, and he's just slaughtering uh, the sacrificial animal, and he's going to bring it in on his own. It's sort of comparable to going to Bible class without rebound, without confession. He's not doing what is necessary in order to get into the presence of God. So first, the, the, the animal, while it was alive, was to be brought for the priest to, to sanctify it and to pray over it. And so now this man is guilty legally and he is going to have to uh, have certain penalties imposed upon him. And the point is, this is the word kashav, translated reckoned. Blood guiltiness is to be imputed to that man. So there we see that this is a legal concept that entails certain responsibilities that go with it. Now when we talk about the theological concept of of, uh, imputation, there are three factors. These three factors are the source, which is God himself, the nature of the imputation, and the recipient of the imputation. Now, there are two different categories of imputations which we must understand before we get into specifically evaluating what happens with Adam's original sin. Those two categories are real imputations and judicial imputations, and we will look at that next Sunday morning. Now, remember how critical this is. Some of this may be new to some of you. It may be a little over your head, but this is foundational. If you're going to understand justification by faith, You must understand imputation. Too many Christians are running around thinking that the whole problem in their spiritual life, their own personal sin. That's not the basis of condemnation. We will see next Sunday morning that the reason you stand condemned before God is not your sin, but Adam's sin. You may say, well, how is that fair? How is that just? And what we will see next Sunday morning 
is nothing could be more fair or more just and that this whole system of imputation that God has designed is the most incredible, remarkable solution to the sin problem that we could ever imagine. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank You for our so great salvation. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not sure of their eternal destiny, that even now they would realize their need to to have their uh, eternal destiny secured through faith alone in Christ alone. All they have to do is tell you in the privacy of their own soul, Father, I accept your free gift of Jesus Christ as my Savior. Jesus Christ went to the cross. There He died as our substitute and paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. So that personal sin, human sin, and Adam's original sin are no longer the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ paid it all. The issue now is whether we accept it or reject it. Father, as we continue our study of our salvation, justification by faith, we pray that you would help us to understand these concepts that they might challenge us to live for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.